Oh Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts this morning, that my words would resonate with what you wish to speak, say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm pretty certain that there aren't many people who would view a stay in prison as a positive experience. A holiday at Her Majesty's pleasure is not something that is particularly associated with success or joy, but more something to keep quiet about, to move on from, and to forget. Talking about a friend or relative being in prison isn't likely to form any comfortable conversation that you might have in the parade outside the post office or in one of the soon-to-be, praise God, two coffee shops in Claygate. But there are always, always exceptions. For some, prison could be seen as a blessed relief. Incarceration could mean separation from an enemy or a fear. It could be that having your immediate needs looked after with no responsibilities, nobody to look out for, no one to worry about, would be a luxury when basic life is really challenging to you. And then there are always the uplifting and inspiring stories of those people who've had their lives turned around in prison or they've had a spiritual awakening due to their imprisonment. I know many in Alcoholics Anonymous who have found relief and recovery from addiction whilst in prison. But in the main, I think we view prison pretty negatively. The result of something bad, something wrong that needs correcting. But here in our passage today, we have Paul writing to the Philippians from a prison. He writes to his brothers and sisters with both compassion and joy. He's not withered or crushed by being in chains, but instead he stands confident in his calling to preach the gospel. Despite his circumstances, he remains useful and encouraging. Paul is not ashamed or disheartened by his incarceration. In fact, he's pretty upbeat about it. He is teetering on being joyous. So what is it that makes this prison experience so different for Paul? We're going to take a look together at these few verses and try and understand what was going on. To understand what Paul was saying then and what he can still say to us today. So if you've closed your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're on page 1178 of the church Bibles. So this passage starts, verse 12, 13. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And there we have the essential source of Paul's joy in those last six words. He is in chains for Christ. Jesus is absolutely central to Paul's joy and why he saw his imprisonment in a positive light. It was an opportunity for him to testify to Christ. A way to speak to a captive audience inside the prison, especially the palace guard who would have been extremely influential. They'd have had the ears of many, many people of stature outside of the prison. The people, or everyone else, as Paul puts it in verse 13, is hearing about Jesus, and they are hearing about it so widely 
because Paul was in prison. And we see this biblical witness of suffering in many places in the Bible, but particularly if we go back right to the beginning in Genesis chapter 50. Here we can see how Joseph understood the significance of the suffering that he had at the hands of his brothers. If you remember, their cruel actions led to his imprisonment in Egypt and more. But he assures them that that despite their fear of him retaliating against them, that he sees God's goodness in what he suffered. He explains to them, them that even though they intended him harm, God intended it for good. God didn't bring about Joseph's suffering, but he used it for good. But I suspect that none of us need to look that far to see God working good out of ill, even in their own lives or in the lives of those around them. The reason I am standing here today doing what I am doing is because I was first drawn here to this church by adversity. It was my elder daughter Louise's epilepsy that brought us here to church only six years ago. All I was looking for was peace of mind. If only I had known. But seriously, both my girls acknowledged and understood right from the start that God had given us this incredible gift of transformation and faith through Louise's suffering. Louise is happy for me to share her story because both she and I would never, ever have imagined that good would come from that frightening and uncertain place. But it did. When we suffer, we can make a choice. We can either turn to God or we can turn away from God. Our suffering and the visible bearing of it in faith gives confidence to others that this is indeed the truth. Our perception of a person changes as they go through hardship or persecution. Authentic faith shows through adversity in a way that can powerfully witness to Christ. And Paul knows this. In verse 14, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. A few years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Charlene Bodie speak. Uh, She's a preacher and evangelist from the United States, and she has a very powerful story that she tells. Brought up a Christian, she had a strong faith from an early age, and her mother taught her really early on that there was real power in the name Jesus. So at age 17, while she was standing on a street corner in Denver, Colorado, where she lived, she was kidnapped by a recently released convicted rapist. He whispered in her ears all the things that he wanted to do to her, and then he bundled her into the back of his car and drove off at speed. Charlene prayed. She turned to God. And she remembered the words of her mother, that at the name of Jesus, people would either bend the knee or flee. So having prayed, and with those words of her mother's in her head, Charlene said to her kidnapper, Mister, do you know Jesus? He looked at her like she was insane, and he gave absolutely no response. So she waited a moment or two, and she said it again. 
Mister, do you know Jesus Christ? This time, he went nuts. He slammed the accelerator down to the floor, sped off like a maniac, and was muttering in her words like a demon-possessed man. So she said it again. Mister, do you know Jesus Christ? At this, he shrieked, no! And he slammed on the brakes of the car, and he kicked her out. Later, when she was being interviewed by the police, who assumed she had used mace or pepper spray to overcome her abductor, she was able to tell them that she was armed only with the name of Jesus. She witnessed so powerfully that day to those officers that her story is told at every self-defense course that is held in the police department in Denver, Colorado to this day. There is power in the name Jesus. Amen. So, with the name of Jesus, we are armed and dangerous. We get the chance to play a part in whether people bend the knee or flee at the name of Jesus Christ. But only if we say it out loud where people can hear it. Before I came to faith in Jesus, the mention of his name would make me recoil. I would change the subject and I would get onto something else really quickly. I was quite happy to describe myself as spiritual, but talk about Jesus, no way. That was too much. Why did his name bother me so much? I know today why it bothered me, because there is power in the name Jesus. Power that transforms, power that heals, and power that gives life. But that's scary. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you don't know it, it's a story based on the gospel, Mr. Beaver is asked by Susan if Aslan is safe. And his reply says it all. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The thing is, though, do we believe that we are armed and dangerous? Do we believe that people will listen to us? Do we believe that we can make a difference? I spent some time reflecting on what I think can stop me from proclaiming his name. Sometimes I think it's down to the safety with which I live in, the vacuum-packed, virus-obsessed, hand-sanitizing world in which I exist. I wonder, would it be easier for me to shout his name out if I were in danger or if my life depended on it, like Charlene's? You see, statistics suggest that in parts of the world where Christians are persecuted, Christianity has the greatest rates of growth. I don't know exactly why that is, but I think I know what stops us from speaking his name. Fear. Paul says it in verse 14. His imprisonment for Christ, his witness to his faith, enabled others to dare to proclaim the gospel without fear. If Paul is imprisoned for his faith and he is talking to high-ranking soldiers about Christ, then why shouldn't they, Paul's fellow believers, be talking to their friends and neighbors? It helped them overcome their fear. Faith overcomes fear. 
But here in Claygate, if we aren't frightened of persecution or imprisonment, then what is it that we fear? Is it fear of rejection? Are we frightened of being asked to justify our faith and not have the words? Are we worried about our social standing, our status? Concerned that people might think we're a bit soft, gullible, easily led? Are we worried that our faith is a sign of weakness? Are we reluctant to speak out in case we lose friends or respect? Or is it that you just don't want to have to respond to statements like, do you really believe that? The list goes on and on and on. What can we do? Well, I think there are three really practical things that we can do really simply. Firstly, we can pray. We can ask God by his Holy Spirit to equip us. Trust that he will provide the words, the opportunity, and the courage that we need. Secondly, we can know that Jesus lives in us, that we carry him wherever we go, We do not do this alone. And we can look to and be inspired by our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, who are stepping out in faith, who are risking their reputations. They are willing to look gullible or stupid. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was ignored. Jesus was insulted. Jesus says in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We are in good company and we can be inspired. If Jesus is the center of our lives, if he is who we say he is, then we should be doing everything, everything in our power to share that fact with others. Because that is what Jesus has called us together to do. Our job as the church is to point to Jesus. What we have, what we have been given, the light of the gospel, isn't just for us to keep. It's for us to pass on. We are commanded to give it away. And this is what Paul can see from prison. He can see that people are being taught about Jesus because his imprisonment has both empowered them to speak and given them opportunity to do so. If we look at verses 15 to 18, it seems also that he isn't even that bothered whether their motives were good or bad. In this short section, Paul is making reference to the lack of unity that existed between the different groups of believers at the time. He mentions it in other letters, including 1 Corinthians. He illustrates it a bit more clearly there, and he kind of shows what what disunity this kind of quarreling caused. He wanted the the followers to really think about who they were following. When he says, what I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? There was very much a cult of the leader type system going on at the time. The people were divided by the individual personalities of the leaders that they associated with. And although Paul wants to challenge this practice, what he's saying in these few verses is that it doesn't matter which leader or personality you'll follow 
or what your motives are. In Paul's case, he doesn't care whether they intended to damage or prosper his reputation. But what was important was that they were focused upon and talking about Jesus. Paul is saying that there is more than one way to preach the gospel. Paul is showing us in this really short passage what still faces the church today, locally, nationally, and globally. Disunity. Paul doesn't propose any organized solution to the disunity that he saw because he probably recognized that a world as diverse as this, with all the personal likes and dislikes of the church, with its different denominations, traditions, and styles, would probably always remain as it has. But what he is saying in these few verses is that that is secondary. It's secondary to the truth of the gospel. It's secondary to the truth of our individual redemption and acceptance by God through Christ. I was on an ordinance training day based on resilience a couple of weeks ago. And Bishop Joe was talking along these lines during one of our sessions. She called us to pay really close attention to the world in which we find ourselves. To be aware of and to celebrate the variety and diversity around us. She said that diversity and difference would challenge those easy assumptions that we make. That it would make us think differently and more openly. She said, her words, God's church should be as diverse as God's world. You see, God wants us to fight for the gospel. The casualties of this spiritual battle may be our pride, our reputation, and what people think of us. Paul can see good working out of the criticism that could have provoked him. He could have spent his time fighting his corner, saving his reputation, justifying his way of doing things. But instead, he's stirred up and he's propelled forwards. He's looking up to God instead of looking down at himself. It's that difference, even with questionable motives, that is giving Paul energy. It's giving him joy. He can see further than the end of his own nose. He says in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. If we're honest, none of our motivations to do anything are 100% pure. We are part of a fallen and broken world, and God knows this. It's just us who can't really come to terms with it. A couple of years ago as a church, we read The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster together. Does anyone remember reading that? Brilliant. And there was another book that was offered to read alongside it, written by Nathan Foster, Richard's son. It was called The Making of an Ordinary Saint. And it documented honestly and amusingly Nathan's personal journey through the disciplines. The chapter and discipline that came to mind whilst I was preparing this talk is the one on fasting. 
Nathan was very concerned about his motives before embarking on this particular discipline, so much so that he confessed the very non-spiritual motive of wanting to lose a few pounds whilst fasting to his father. His dad laughed out loud, assuring him that no one could approach any of the disciplines without jumbled motives, and that it was only God who could untangle them and separate the truth from false. Only God can purify our hearts. Whatever our circumstance, whatever our situation, whatever our motives, God can make good of them. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it goes along the lines of, if you keep your bum on the seat, whatever your head is saying, eventually it will follow. Point yourself in the right direction. However hard that is, regardless of your situations or your motives, keep going to meetings. Keep your bum on the seat and good things will happen. Keep pointing in the right direction. It says in Proverbs 9.21, many are the plans of a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So what then is our purpose in all of this? Well, I think our purpose is to put our focus on Christ. And God, by his spirit, who lives in us, will do the rest. All we can do is point in the right direction. Our circumstances and our motivations are not relevant. But what we point to is. God can work with us, or he can work without us. At the end of the day, it isn't about us. It's about God. But the good news is, is that God wants to work with us. He wants us to have a part in his kingdom. He wants to be in relationship with us, to include us in the internal love that he is in Father, Son, and Spirit. It says in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. And through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we have a relationship with God. A God with whom all things are possible. Knowing Jesus Christ in my life has transformed it in a way that words can't adequately express. But I'm going to have a go. Today, I get to choose whether I live in fear or live in faith. Today, I can know that I'm not alone and never will be. That in every experience, bad, good, or indifferent in my life, Jesus is right here with me. He celebrates with me in the good, stands alongside me in the bad. He laughs with me. He weeps with me. He forgives me when I get it wrong. He loves me. Like, really loves me. Like I love my children or my parents love me, and more. And it doesn't even end there. That is just what he promises right now. This eternal life that God offers us in Jesus Christ starts the moment we come to faith. That's pretty massive, isn't it? 
And it's that which can keep us motivated. It can spur us on and keep us going when things get tough. Knowing that we are loved beyond measure for who we are right now. On a good day and on a bad day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that it is the love of Christ that compels us. And what have I had to do in return? I don't think I've ever really had to suffer for my faith. I may have lost the odd friend on Facebook and had a few uncomfortable conversations over the years. But on the whole, the majority of my friends and family respect me in one sense or another. I suspect that there are those who think I'm stupid, gullible and needy. But what Paul is saying here is that none of that really matters. What matters is God. It is God who we should focus our attention on. We need to look up, be bold in Christ, find our identity and our purpose in him. And regardless of our circumstances, our feelings or our motives, remember that with God, anything is possible. Amen.